The Quality Adjusted Life Year, or Quali, was invented at the UK's University of York by Professor Alan Williams in the 1970s. Some currently engaged in the bitter trench warfare of America's drug pricing debates think that it's high time for another British invasion and the U.S. should fully embrace the U.K.'s use of qualies. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and in today's Vital Health Podcast, I'm having a discussion with William Smith, a senior fellow at the Pioneer Institute, about his recently published book called Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to America's Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations. Bill, it's uh, great to meet you. Great to be here, Dwayne. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm guessing from your title, you're bearish on quality. You're not a fan. I am not a fan. <laughs> um, it's, it's sold as kind of an objective way to value drug therapies. Um, and in my view, it's, it's entirely subjective. Your book spends the entire first chapter describing the history of the quality as well as the establishment of it in the UK. Can you give us a bit of background on why quality came into use, particularly through the National Institutes of Health and Care Excellence, NICE. What is NICE? Is NICE nice? NICE is not nice. Uh, <laughs> NICE is, is the uh, cost-effectiveness body that rates drug therapies for the National Health Service in Great Britain. And unlike the United States, where there are a variety of different payers making decisions about which drugs would be made available, NICE will determine what the British people get definitively, one way or another. If they say no to a drug, Nobody gets it in the whole country. Uh, and when you understand the origins of how the quali came in, a cynic would say the quali was invented as a fig leaf to provide cover for politicians who didn't want to make decisions about which drugs to make available. There was a uh, health minister under John Major named Jerry Malone, um, who in the mid-90s had to make a decision about an MS drug, beta, beta interferon. And... They brought it to his desk, and it was an expensive drug. MS patients wanted it. And he split, split the baby, and he gave it to some patients and not, not others. But he turned to his staff after it was over and said, don't ever bring me a decision like this again, because there's no winning. So go invent something <laughs> that, you, that can be seen as objective by the British people that can make determinations and, and it won't have to be made in this office. And that's, that's really the origin of where they, where they embraced the quality. There was another incident, aside from the interferon debate, there was another one that occurred around Herceptin, which was a breast cancer drug for HER2 positive patients. And it was a similar debate that occurred about where it was going to be used. Was it going to be used as an adjuvant further up or did it get used only in the most extreme cases? And in fact, what happened is it became a political hot potato because, you know, fortunately women are 51% and they vote. Right. You had a situation where the government overruled NICE. So do you think that these are just basically political decisions that are just being covered by a bureaucracy? Absolutely. The quality puts a, a, a value on a human life, one year of human life. And that value could be moved up or down. And, and that's why subjectivity creeps into the quality. So if you valued a, a year of human life, lived in good health at $10 million, as I would for my children, yeah. uh, it, mil they'd be worth millions. Every single drug would be rated as cost-effective. If you ramp that down and say a human life lived in good health for a year is only worth $10,000, most drugs would not be rated as cost-effective. So the government can raise and lower that threshold and determine how much it's going to spend in a year on drugs. So getting to that point about the value of quality, if you look at the U.S., we put it somewhere between 50 and 100,000, depending on the treatment area. 
the UK puts it at 30 to 50,000 British pounds. So is a life in New Zealand worth one tenth of an American life? And is it worth one third in the UK? Is that what we really think? It, it, really, what the New Zealand government is saying is they don't want to pay for most drugs when they lower the threshold that low. In the U.S., it's a more generous threshold because we have a more open society and we're willing to pay for more expensive treatments. But that's why the quality is so subjective, because once you determine that year of human life, it can be anything. And, and that will determine whether drugs are cost effective or not. It's not inherent in, in the drug itself. You highlight that Prime Minister David Cameron in 2010 announced the creation of a cancer drugs fund that would fund cancer treatments regardless of the opinion of NICE and the cost effectiveness review. Why did the UK go down this path to having to establish sort of a separate entity in a black box called the Cancer Drugs Fund? Well, it goes back to the Herceptin controversy that you referenced earlier. That that stirred up women like nobody's business. They descended on the parliament, they protested. And in the midst of this controversy over Herceptin, a report dropped on parliament that basically said the quality of cancer care in the UK is the worst in the developed world. And that report stirred a gigantic controversy. And Cameron said, that's enough. The quality is destroying the quality of cancer care in, in, in the UK. We're just going to pay for new treatments and we'll appropriate 200 million pounds to pay for whatever cancer treatments come along. And that cancer drugs fund is still in existence. And it's considered now not to be working because there's now calls to review and rejigger the cancer drugs fund because it's essentially running out of money. Right. That gets us back to kind of square one where we were 20 years ago. Where do you think this lands? It's going to go through the same kind of political iteration. A new drug will come along that's in high demand and the National Health Service will say we're not paying for it. There'll be a patient and political backlash and Parliament will find the money. We've had a few situations with NICE where NICE have found gene therapies, advanced therapies, cost effective, albeit expensive. And then they've had pushback from the National Health Service, the NHS, which actually writes the checks. And this concerns me about the U.S. because these are the kind of conversations we're seeing now. And this is essentially what CMS is doing with a couple of the Alzheimer's treatment. You have an approval by FDA, and then they're not willing to reimburse it. Yeah. The U.S. system, however, is not as far down the, the path, the terrible path that NICE has taken in the U.K. We still have a diversity of payers. We have a, a vibrant commercial health, health insurance sector. What worries me about the U.S. is the quality worming itself into the government programs, Medicare and Medicaid, because many of those programs are programs of last resort. And if a drug is denied, there's nowhere else to turn. I'm not as worried about the quality finding its way into commercial health plans. I think a commercial health plan medical director, for example, would read a quality report and say, okay, that's interesting, but we have all these other considerations. We want to have a quality formulary. The employers who employ us wants, want, wants these drugs covered. There are market incentives to keep quality high in the commercial sector, but the government sector is a different story. And that's the quality in the government sector is what worries me. Now, you've highlighted in your book and again, I'd like to point out that Bill's book is called Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to American Seniors and Other Vulnerable Patients. You argue that qualities have several inherent biases, and this gets to the point of Medicare. Firstly, you state that, and I'm quoting, because older adults would, by definition, exhibit shorter life expectancy, medicines used by senior citizens would expect a lower quality score. So we have a quality of life assessment 
What would happen then if you're older? Why would this get a lower score? Well, the, the, they rate, the quality rates drugs according to two poles. How does it, does it extend life? longevity and does it improve the quality of life and then it's given a score that combines those two poles uh, when it comes to a senior citizen if you're an, if a drug comes along that's going to be taken for 80 year olds how much more life is it going to extend i mean it may maybe extends five years maybe it extends six years a drug for a 30 year old person however may give them 50 years of life. So it's going to get a bigger longevity score. And there's a bias, and therefore, in valuing drugs that are going to treat younger populations and a bias against drugs that are going to treat senior populations. And you further argue in your book that there are several laws about age discrimination, and there have been several cases, particularly regarding the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, where you're not allowed specifically within the tenets of the law to use quality. Do you think this is still being considered if, in fact, the government has already said you can't use these and they violate the law? The strongest legal infirmity against um, the quality is in the disability area. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act clearly would overturn the use of a quality if they were to start using it in Medicare and Medicaid because the quality of life portion of the quality score is always going to give lower scores to people that are living with a disability because they're, they may never be restored to 100% quality of life. Which gives it a top score in a quality. So a one would be 100% improvement. Exactly. The Institute of Clinical and Economic Review, ICER, which is positioning itself as sort of the unbiased American version of NICE, ICER says that they have tools to square this circle about inherent age bias, inherent ADA biases, the EVLYGs, for example. Well, what, what do these do? They're saying that when it comes to people living with disabilities, they're saying they will tweak the model so that longevity will become more important than just quality of life. I've looked at the, the, the tweaks they've made carefully and there's nothing in these, this new model that's actually required as part of a cost-effectiveness review. So it, it, they're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth when they say we've solved this disability problem. I don't, I don't believe they have. Is there any way to make a quality fair then, according to U.S. law? I'm of the opinion, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, but I'm of the opinion that these attempts to build a better mousetrap are all inherently flawed. That... You can't have a, a body of experts consider every possible value that goes into a drug therapy. That works itself out in a million ways because caregivers, their physicians, the payers, the manufacturers, all of these actors have a little bit of knowledge about the value of a drug. And the market tends to sort that out. And, and drugs that are overpriced, like Aduhelm for, um, for Alzheimer's, they had to scale their price back. So Valdi is another example. They came in at 86000 They got a few competitors. The drug had, price had to come down. The market kind of sorts these things out as it is now. The, the example I like is PCSK9 inhibitors that were an alternative to Lipitor. You know, this was a, an injectable that mimicked a gene editing error in the body where the body wouldn't process cholesterol. And they looked fantastic, 20% better efficacy. Yep. But the problem was Lipitor became free. It went generic and literally became pennies a pill. And PCSK9s came in and tanked, basically. It was a commercial failure, not a product failure. There are so many flaws in, in the quality reviews that I, it, it's hard to even capture them in one question. I mean, 
you know, for example, in oncology, I have a chapter on how the quality really is not a suitable uh, cost-effectiveness methodology to rate oncology drugs. And one of the reasons for that is because, as you know, many times a clinical trial will be held and they'll test an oncology drug on a certain type of cancer, prostate cancer. And then they'll discover later, after it's proved, Oncologists will discover, hey, this works really well with lung cancer. Yeah. Well, the quality review is done on the prostate cancer clinical, the clinical evidence, but it's being used now in lung cancer. So how is that review on prostate cancer worth anything? It's not. Take leukemia, for example. Rituximab is a hugely effective and now generic therapy. 66%, two-thirds of people walk in with leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they walk out completely cancer-cured forever. It's not free, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper than it was 10 years ago because it's gone biosimilar. Now, if you're putting an oncology product in the market, why would you want to compare yourself to rituximab? You're going to want to come in at the late stage where there isn't treatment, and you want to say, look, we're effective here when other stuff isn't working. Unfortunately, we're putting an evaluation metric in place, and it's not fair because that's often where those treatments are going to be used. They're going to be used in combination. They're going to be used adjuvant. They're going to be used neoadjuvant. They're going to be used much further up the value chain. I'm more optimistic than you because... <laughs> I think with personalized medicine and the mapping of the human genome, you know, we're discovering, as you know, in lung cancer, nobody has lung cancer anymore. You have lung cancer of a certain gene type. Correct. And there are, you know, there are many, many different forms of lung cancer. So these large studies where they're studying a drug for lung cancer are irrelevant now because some, some of those patient populations are going to have see highly effective use of a, a, a product and some are going to get nothing out of it. And so having a general study of all lung cancer patients and how this drug works is meaningless. I think eventually personalized medicine makes the quality go away and become obsolete. Now, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, they've commented a bit on some of these problems of quality and ICER using quality rate cancers because they say that they don't capture the full impact. And I'm going to quote ASCO here. It says, studies indicate that a typical caregiver for cancer patients provide an average of a staggering 32.9 hours of care per week. This is usually a family member or a combination of family members. How does ICER accommodate the fact that there are other costs that are currently not captured in some sort of quality metric, which we already say can vary by an order of magnitude, depending on if you're in New Zealand or not? They ignore it. They, they, you know, a caregiver, as you said, a, if a drug allows a caregiver to go back to work, restore the family's finances because they had been full-time caregiving, ICER doesn't even consider that as a value. They don't consider it as part of the study, let alone, uh, and some economists have, have told, told me this, look, the life expectancy of the average person has grown from mid-50s to 80 now. What about those 20 years where the, the person who would have died at 55 is now working and a productive economic asset to the economy not taken into consideration? Not taken into consideration. So I'm just skeptical that, that ICER can figure out all the different value and put it into some model using a calculator and come up with a true price. I just, I'm skeptical. Do they use quality of life metrics at all right now? Are these even considered? Yeah, they use quality of life metrics, but the way they the way they assemble quality of life is they'll do a survey and they'll 
survey not the patients that are suffering from that particular disease. They'll, su they'll survey the general population and they'll say, what if a drug came along that reduced your pain from an eight to a six? Without knowing what an eight or a six is. Exactly. How valuable would that be to you? And the, the member of the general public will will respond to that survey, and that's how they, they make assessments about the quality of life. So you should stand next to them with a ball-peen hammer and say, here, let me hit your hand. Okay, that's a seven. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. And so there's no comparator that's actually being done with the patients who are actually under treatment? No. No. And are there any calls to alter that at all? Oh, absolutely. Patient, patient advocates complain about that all the time. And, you know, I hate to be a cynic, but again... I think ICER knows that if they surveyed patients instead of the general population... Yeah, they'd get much different results. Yep. It'd, be, it'd be turn out to be the drugs would be more valuable. Let's stick to oncology here a little bit. One of the other issues that we're seeing, both with the new Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, as well as some of the comments on ICER and Quali, is the problem of orphan therapeutics and the issue of cost effectiveness in orphans. You dedicate a large part of your book specifically to orphan oncology, given the fact that it's such an enormous amount of the treatment paradigm. 82% of all accelerated approvals are orphan oncology products, for example. How does Quali right now deal with orphan therapies and what is the reality of ICER dealing with those therapies as well? The reality is they don't deal with them very well. And part of it has to do with that threshold amount. So if they value a human life at $100,000 for a year, look, rare disease treatments, we can argue about individual prices for particular drugs that have come along that have been a million or $2 million. And we can argue about whether that particular drug is unfairly priced. But as a, the economic reality is if you're inventing a drug, an orphan drug for a very rare disease, and you're only gonna treat 5,000 patients when it's done, it's going to be more expensive. And so the thresholds that they put in place are not suitable for rating rare disease drugs. And as it turns out, ICER rates most rare disease drugs as not cost effective because the thresholds are too low. They need to significantly raise them and look at the business model of rare diseases and orphan diseases and recognize those therapies are going to be more expensive than a traditional small molecule drug that you pick up at CVS. Is the problem then that we're dealing with a metric, a quality, which was invented in the 70s, which when we were dealing with large cardiovascular indications, personalized medicine didn't even exist. Personalized medicine was getting your blood pressure checked by the doctor personally. You know, that, yep. was, that was the extent of it. Are we now dealing with the fact that we're targeting therapeutics. I mean, CRESPR-Cas9 is coming. We're going to be doing N of 1 therapeutics. Is this just maybe not fit for purpose given the way the clinical oncology, for example, is moving? I think that's, you articulated it exactly right. And that's why I said before, I think the personalized medicine makes the quality ultimately obsolete. You can't do these meta studies with tens of thousands of patients that have one condition. Because if you look at that one condition, there's probably 50 conditions in that one condition based on genetic markers. How do we get around this then? Because if we're getting into what's called value-based healthcare, if this is what people are professing that we want to do, is the ultimate solution then to run real-world evidence studies after release based on surrogate endpoints, for example? And again, everything I'm saying now is under complete attack 500 meters from where we're standing right now yeah. <laughs> from the Capitol just up the hill from our office here. The fact is that seems to make more sense 
adaptive licensing, adaptive pathways, all these things that have been buzzwords for the last decade, but in fact, they never get applied. What do we need to do then to try and find another methodological approach to value a treatment? I think, I think the, the smartest thing to do would be to figure out value-based contracting because we, we're going to come into a world soon where rare disease drugs are going to be cost a million dollars or more. Okay, so go to a payer if you're the manufacturer and say, okay, well, pay, we'll pay in installments. The payer says to the manufacturer, we'll pay in installments. If this thing stops working, we'll, we stop paying. Write a contract that recognizes the value. If, if it continues to work for five years, great, great. We'll pay the million dollars over five years. And I think that's the future because it's unsustainable to have a one-time payment of $2 million for a, a, a drug. I just don't think payers are going to be able to do that. The problem you're dealing with now is the uncertainty around that pathway, particularly when you get into Medicare. We now have the Inflation Reduction Act where we're going to be ratcheting down, creating a loss of exclusivity event at either year 9 or 13, depending on if you're a small or large molecule. We now have the Baldwin proposed bill that is going to potentially ratchet that back from 9 and 13 to maybe 8 or 7. We have the Biden budget proposal that now is going to say, okay, we're going to negotiate at year 5. Whether you're small or large, we don't care. Everything gets negotiated at year five. And all of these things now, if you are running a pipeline and you're running clinical <laughs> trials, you must be pulling your hair out going, man, what, where's the end point? Where does this end up? I mean, am I paying, am I giving money back even before I launch at a certain point? How do you actually do a value-based contract if you're, you don't even know where the finish line is, if you don't even know where you're moving to? How does that become a reality? Well, it's, it's going to be problematic. And, and there are other issues with value-based contracting. So what if a, a patient switches health plans? Which most patients in the U.S. do every three years. Exactly. So you know, who, who, owns the, who owes the money if they switch? There, there are problems with it, but I think they, they ought to be thinking creatively about this because there's no doubt, based on the science, that rare, genetically-oriented expensive therapies are in our future. You make a point. I'd like to go back to something you'd said in your book about the Americans with Disabilities Act, particularly related to mental illness. And you point out there's a provision within the uh, ADA that's part of the Olmstead ruling that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I found this particularly fascinating because according to the law, and I was completely unaware of this, anything that increases the risk of being institutionalized for a mentally disabled person actually violates the ADA. Now, leaving aside the situation in San Francisco, in Portland, in Los Angeles, in New York, in Chicago, with street people just not even being treated at all, doesn't this have profound implications for some of the discussion we're seeing where we have had good clinical trial data on an Alzheimer's drug that now CMS is saying, we're not going to fund this? Doesn't this call into question the legality of some of these decisions? I think there's a lot of litigation in the future about some of these decisions. I, I, I don't know how you get around it for reasons you just described. I mean, it, the, the ADA is extremely protective of people living with disabilities. And if you start denying them drugs for a variety of reasons related to the quality or, or something else, you're, you're going to be in court. Have any of your colleagues in the industry been having these conversations with some of the politicians saying, look, you know, we have a clinical trial. This is approved by FDA. This has been validated by our current federal regulations. And we have clinical evidence saying that this has a 30% reduction of impact of Alzheimer's, for example. 
if there's not one condition that doesn't have a guarantee that at some point you will be institutionalized mentally, it's, it's Alzheimer's. Yeah. How do you then, if you are the head of CMS, justify not doing that? I mean, you will. <laughs> We're in Washington, D.C. This town's chock a brick with lawyers. I mean, my God, I mean, you shake a tree, they fall out of them. I mean, you're right. Aren't we going to see a huge amount of legislation and litigation on this? I, I, I think it's inevitable. Uh, but I have not seen any companies kind of talk to CMS that way about their, their particular drugs. I think it's in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. There are, there are people out there in a general way talking about how the quality violates the ADA. Former House Majority Whip, Tony Coelho, who's a card-carrying liberal Democrat. Absolutely. Um, but he, he suffers with epilepsy, and, and he represents the disabilities community. He's basically said, if the quality goes in, we're going to sue. So if we start litigation around the ADA, given the behavior of the current administration and, unfortunately, the House and the Senate, who have really done, say, nothing about the homelessness issue. I mean, they basically ignored it. What are the profound implications then for, say, a Portland, Oregon that hasn't been dealing with this for a San Francisco? That's an extremely interesting question. I haven't even thought about it that far because people are being denied treatments. One would think yeah. they are. They would have to be. Yeah. Turning our attention to maybe something, I don't know if it's sunnier, certainly not the PBM issue, <laughs> pharmaceutical benefit managers. What's intriguing to me in a lot of these discussions, particularly when we get into pricing, reimbursement, et cetera, it seems to me that finally the pharmaceutical benefit managers, which act as the middlemen between the company and the insurer and the actual pill on the tongue, these companies such as CVS uh, play an enormous role on funding and listing drugs and formularies in particular. Quoting again from your book, you state CVS Caremark, the nation's second largest pharmacy benefit manager, recently announced that it would employ quality-based analysis to assist clients in lowering drug costs. What does this mean? Well, uh, as it turns out, there's a, a, a happy ending to this story because CVS <laughs> has largely backed off on their use of the quality. They got enormous pushback from patient advocates. ICER even goes as high as $150,000 for their threshold on the value of life. So CVS had lowered that by $50,000 when they went with the $100,000 number. And so that alarmed patients enormously. And patient groups pushed back and the, the initiative seems to have gone away. Do you think that the PBMs, obviously there's some antitrust discussions on the Hill here. Do you think that the PBMs are gonna be coming under more scrutiny in general? Absolutely. Some of their practices are indefensible. I mean, recently, you know, insulin prices are really interesting. They've been dropping enormously. And the three big insulin makers are basically saying, we're not going to pay these enormous rebates anymore. We're just Well, it's been 70 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Yet, when, the, when some of these insulin makers were offering low-priced insulin, very, very low-priced the PBMs were putting the high-priced insulin on their formularies and denying the low-priced insulin because they wanted to get those rebates. So there are practices like that that are just completely indefensible, and I don't know how PBMs can escape scrutiny. Well, you know, in the 50s, you used to do that in the record industry, and it was called payola, right? <laughs> you know, pay to play. And a lot of people went to jail for that, but yet we allow this in the context of the pharmaceutical industry and PBMs. And there's a lot of PBM reform legislation kicking around in the states, and it's eventually going to get to Congress. So the Energy and Commerce Committee said they're going to take up P PBM reform legislation. 
If we look at ICER and quality in the context of Medicaid, which happens at the state level, and you know something like one third of all children in the United States now are on some sort of Medicaid benefit, there's been an awful lot of heat in Oregon, in other states as well, but the Oregon one is the most recent, Massachusetts as well, where they've been trying to use quote unquote Medicaid reform to control costs. And the, most of the heat recently was around the accelerated approvals of Medicaid, which we did a big study, we released at bio last year, and we showed that total state spending on accelerated approvals in Medicaid was one half of 1% on average. I mean, it was basically a rounding error. It's a, it's a state catering budget. It was ridiculous. But the fact is now there's a lot of talk about using ICER in Medicaid at the state level to start putting this in place. ICER has aggressively marketed itself to Medicaid directors and have gone in and said, we can control your costs. And it's it's not clear to me which states have taken them up. It's very opaque. We don't know what, which states are, have embraced ICER. It's concerning to me because Medicaid is, by definition, the payer of last resort for it. Patients in Medicaid don't want to be in Medicaid. They just land there. They may have a disability. They may have some other issue, but they, they may be poor. They can't vote with their feet and walk to another health plan. They're stuck in Medicaid. So if, just like it, with the National Health Service in Great Britain, if ICER comes in and says, you cannot have this drug in a state Medicaid program, nobody in that program is going to get it. It's concerning. In fact, we filed a public records request with Massachusetts Medicaid and said, okay, are you using ICER or not? They, they Did won't, you get a response? They won't respond. No, they will not respond. Can so, you do a FOIA request then? Or? Uh, uh, we, we essentially did the state version of a FOIA request. And uh, they've blown through all the legal thresholds that, that uh, as far as not responding. So, you know, it's something that may eventually get litigated. Let me, let me restate that question. Have you gone through a FOIA request at the federal side of that funding for Massachusetts? Because that there's a portion, obviously the money comes from the Fed and then is matched at the state. Have you applied for FOIA request on the information on the federal government? We side? have not, only because we've filed a FOIA request with the feds on a bunch of other things. <laughs> so we don't, we don't want to get, you know, get crosswise of each other. Your lawyers are busy. Exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. So you outline in your book a series of three core questions that legislators should ask about ICER before any quality implementation is put into law and in stone. You divide them into three core areas, which I'd like to address individually with you right now. First one is ethical considerations. What do you think uh, a state or federal legislator should do about the ethical considerations around ICER? So is it moral to deny a drug that's going to cure a cancer for a certain population? Is it moral to deny that drug based on some quality review? And you think that you're seeing that now, particularly with the orphan oncology products? Yes. Yes. And I'm concerned about it in the future. But in fairness, we've been beating up Beltway people for a little while on this podcast. And I want to point out that Kathy McMorris Rogers, the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, has passed legislation to ban the quality in federal programs. It's passed the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Health. It's passed the full committee. And it's awaiting a House floor vote. She has a son living with disabilities, and she's aware of some of these issues around the quality and has aggressively worked to ban it. Have you had any conversations with Kevin McCarthy's office? Or do we know what's going on in the House? I have. And... Uh, he said he says they're going to have a floor vote on this. Interesting. Yeah. Do any daylight when it's going to occur? Well, they. I was told by McCarthy staff that it would have happened in March, but it, it didn't. Well, there's been other. <laughs> other things well, what going happened on too. is it. At, it was a bipartisan vote at the subcommittee level. The Democrats were concerned about. You know, they had the Tony Coelho concerns. Sure. They were concerned about the disability community and the impact of quality on the disability community. 
When it moved to the full committee, it became more of a partisan vote because the Democrats were concerned that if you ban the quality and you had sweeping language banning the quality, it might prevent the administration from doing cost effectiveness reviews of some type to put price controls in through the IRA. So it broke down that way, and the Democrats voted against it, and the Republicans voted for it. So it made it out of full committee, but it became more of a partisan issue with the Democrats protecting the IRA or saying they were protecting the IRA, and the Republicans saying, we need to ban the quality. So your second bullet point here that legislators need to think about before they legislate on quality and ICER, there are methodological issues and theoretical assumptions. What are are those? One of them we discussed. So if you're going to rate quality of life issues, don't poll the general public, poll the patients who are actually suffering from that condition, because they're going to have the the keenest view on how this drug might improve their life. And the general public may have no idea how it would improve their life. And so, you know, there, there, there are lots of things like that within the quality that could be tweaked and fixed. And your third bullet point is condition-specific considerations. So is this you know, orphan drugs, theoretically small indications, et cetera, that sort of? Yeah, uh, rating cancer drugs using clinical trial data, which is now obsolete, or reviewing a, a drug and, and not taking into full consideration that this is going to treat a population with disabilities. The quality breaks down when you get into the circumstances of patients. That's when it really breaks down. It's kind of this abstract theory that sounds good. Oh, any we're going to rate a drug va- uh, highly if it increases your life and makes your life better. Well, who could disagree with that? But that's an abstract concept. And when you get into the circumstances of patient's life, the thing breaks down. And it has all sorts of perverse treatments of specific patients. So if we extrapolate out the last two years here, the Biden administration coming into the next election, what do you think is going to happen? You've already mentioned that there's committee action that's been approved that may get a floor vote. What else do you see occurring with Quali and ICER in the next 24 months? Where do you think this goes? The Biden administration actually has stated on the record through a report that Secretary Becerra put out that they will not use the Quali in rating drugs in Medicare. They've distanced themselves for the quality because of the disabilities issue. I don't know whether Tony Coelho lobbied them or, or how that section got into that report, but they've been very much on record. I am concerned. That I was hopeful that this bill moving through the House to ban qualities was going to get more legs and bipartisan legs for the reasons of, that the Democrats do want to protect the disability community and the Republicans now. You know, they're, they're opposed to the quality because they're opposed to socialized medicine, if you know what I mean. They, they don't want rationing like in, in Europe. They kind of agree, but they agree for different reasons. I was hoping that this would be a bar, bipartisan thing. If it gets sucked into the IRA debate about price controls, uh, I'm not optimistic the thing's going to make it through the Senate. Bill Smith from the Pioneer Institute Senior Fellow and his new book, Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to America's Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations. Uh, Bill, it's been great to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.